Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening in studying God's word, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study, focus on the word. And I think that tonight we just might wrap up our tabernacle study, but I'm not going to make any promises. Let's pray. Now, Father, again, we're so thankful that we have your word because it is a blueprint to history. It is a roadmap to our spiritual life. and It is the framework and the frame of reference by which we are to evaluate everything that goes on in our lives. Father, in your word, you've revealed yourself to us. You did this in a way that seems unusual to us as you progressively reveal things down through the centuries, as you revealed things about yourself first to Adam and Eve, later to Noah, later to Abraham, then to Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel, down through the centuries into the New Testament. And each of these progressive uh, revelations, each time that you add another segment to our understanding of you, it focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and one of the greatest of these was the tabernacle and all that it teaches about the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in preparing uh, Israel and in preparing mankind to be able to recognize and understand who Jesus Christ is, who he was when he came, and what he did on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that as we... Uh, finish things up this evening that we can come to a greater appreciation understanding of your working through the tabernacle and the temple and how this uh, helps us to understand who Jesus is, his present high priestly ministry, and our future priestly ministry with him. Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we have, we diverted back in early May, from our verse-by-verse study of Hebrews, because Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 presupposes that the person who reads these two chapters has a good grasp of the Old Testament teaching in relationship to the tabernacle, the temple, and the articles of furniture in the tabernacle, and the ritual that occurred in the tabernacle, and also in the temple. So we took a diversion to go through a study, a detailed study of the tabernacle and the articles of furniture and the significance of each piece of furniture in the tabernacle. We started with the outer courtyard, and then we uh, looked at the two things that were in the outer courtyard, the brazen altar and then the uh, laver. Then we went into the holy, uh, holy place, looking at the table of showbread, the uh, menorah, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, 
then through the veil, which represented the body of Christ, to the Ark of the Covenant, seeing how each of these uh, pieces of furniture and the ritual that occurred there teaches some something about the Lord Jesus Christ, and it helps us to understand a different facet of his ministry. The brazen altar emphasizes substitutionary atonement. The laver emphasizes the necessity that a priest must be cleansed of sin before he can serve, before he can minister, before he can uh, grow as an individual believer. The table of showbread emphasized Christ as the bread of life. The um, menorah emphasized Christ as the light of the world. The altar of incense emphasized Christ as our intercessor. And the Ark of the Covenant speaks of his uh, substitutionary work on the cross where he uh, paid the price for our sins so that we could have a uh, have eternal life. All of this is taught in the ark, I mean in the in the tabernacle. Now as we are coming to our conclusion, we started to trace the history of the ark, which is the history of the tabernacle and the history of the temple in the Old Testament. And the ark is at the very center of the worship of the tabernacle. Now as I taught this, we started, as we would experience it, approaching the tabernacle, coming from the outside, walking through the gate, seeing the outer outer curtains, and then going in and seeing each item as you would going from the outside in. However, when God revealed this to Moses, and Moses writes it down in the book of Exodus, he started at the center. He started with the Ark of the Covenant and worked his way out because God is at at the center. Now, there's a saying in Midrash Tanhuma, uh, Kedoshim 1, Jerusalem is in the center of the world. The Temple Mount is in the center of Jerusalem. The temple in the center of the Temple Mount. The Holy of Holies is in the center of the temple. And the Ark is in the center of the Holy of Holies. The rabbis also said that the ark was in the exact thought that the ark was in the exact center of the world standing on the starting point of the creation and the foundation stone on which the ark rested in the holy of holies is believed to have been the stone on which Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac of course the muslims have perverted that through the satanic influence of of uh, Muhammad, that it was Ishmael, but it wasn't. It was Isaac, and God demonstrated the essence of substitutionary atonement at that point by, at the last minute, stopping Abraham's hand and substituting a ram who had been caught in a thicket. At that time, the Temple Mount was just a, out in the rugged wilderness, and there was a ram that was caught, trapped uh, by his horns, and so God provided a perfect sacrifice as a substitute for Isaac. Now, as we've gone through the history of the ark in the previous lesson, we took a brief hiatus as we looked at the doctrines related to decision-making in the voting booth. But now we're back just to bring you up to, up to date. We saw that God spelled out specific regulations in the Old Testament for how the ark should be transported. Deuteronomy 10.8 and Numbers 7.9, we have the essence of this, that it was the tribe of Levi, only the Levitical priests were to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They, it was not to be carried on something else. They were to carry it 
and number seven, nine, specifically the sons of Kohath, the tribe of Kohath, was to carry it uh, because theirs was the service of the uh, holy objects, that is, the furniture within the temple, and they were to carry it upon their shoulders. Now, that's important because we got right up to the point of David bringing the ark into Jerusalem this last time, and this was one of the problems that David faced was he failed to follow these strict guidelines when he brought the ark into the temple. And there was the episode uh, where the uh, ox cart that was bringing the ark in hit a bump in the road, and it looked like, like the ark would fall out. And um, Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, the priest, put his hand out to stabilize the ark, and he died instantly. And what we learn from this is that God has a specific way that we are to do things. There is a specific way of salvation. There are precise guidelines, precise mandates for the spiritual life. We have to be in fellowship that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Scripture says the Lord will not hear us. We can't come to God on our terms, on the basis of how we think things can go. Uh, the, our relationship with the Lord isn't based on some sort of general ideas that are presented in the Scripture, but there are very precise protocols that are laid out for us, and we need to learn them because only by doing these uh, things the way the Scripture says can we have a profitable relationship with the Lord, walk with Him, and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the ark illustrates this. Here we looked, we had a map showing the travels of the ark at this very dark period in Israel's history when they have gone to battle at Aphek. Aphek is located uh, right here on the map, and they go to the, <clears throat> the battle of Aphek against the Philistines, and the Philistines defeat them roundly. Uh, Eli is killed. His two, uh, I mean, uh, Eli's two sons are killed. Eli, as a result of it, falls over dead when he hears the news. Uh, and the ark is captured by the Philistines and is taken back by the Philistines to their uh, one of their chief cities in Ashdod and put inside the temple of Dagon. And this is one of those episodes in the in the Bible that is uh, rather earthy. And God has, shows God has a great sense of humor, great sarcasm. And irony here, as he is uh, ridiculing the gods of the Philistines, and he puts down their religious system in a way that certainly wouldn't be acceptable today, and probably uh, the New York Times and a number of other newspapers would come out just condemning God roundly because he was so insensitive uh, to people. And the, I make that point because we live in a world today where people are becoming so influenced by these worldly value systems that if I got in the pulpit, and I've been accused of being too sarcastic at times, and I really don't think I am, but the Bible is filled with these sarcasms. I mean, from the first chapter of Genesis, almost everything in Genesis 1 is said in such a way as to tweak the believer in 
uh, the Babylonian religions and the Babylonian view of creation and as well as the Egyptians. And so there's this undercurrent there. But if you just read the Bible in the English, you don't know anything about these cultures, you don't realize how God is is doing this. He's just not politically correct. So he goes at Ashdod when the ark is placed in the temple to Dagon. The next morning they wake up and Dagon has fallen on his face and bowing down before the ark of God. And so the people come in. Of course, they're all upset and concerned. They stand uh, Dagon back up on his feet. And the next day they come in and he's down on his face again. But this time his um, his head and his hands have been cut off to show that Dagon is just uh, just a piece of stone. He can't think and he can't do anything, and it is only the God of the Jews that can do that. And so then they, um, the people in Ashdod decide to send the ark away because it's too much trouble and causing too much uh, pain and suffering because they have, um, uh, they've experienced all this, so they send it over to Ekron. Now, the people at Ekron just you know, couldn't believe this, that the Ashdodites would send them this horrible Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Covenant comes there, the, there's just a disaster, and God kills a number of them and brings this terrible disease upon them that many people think was a bubonic plague, that they had these tumors. Uh, I always like the King James translation, translating it hemorrhoids. And I always had a lot of fun trying to imagine what a golden hemorrhoid would look like. But uh, many scholars believe these were the the sores or the the uh, tumors, the buboes that were caused in bubonic plague. And so, in order to pacify uh, the God of Israel, and also they, they they made five golden mice, and it would be the the fleas from the mice that would cause the or pass on the bubonic plague. So that kind of helps put it together. So they made five golden mice, five golden tumors that they put inside the the ark to take take it back, and they uh, hitched up the ark to a couple of uh, milch cows, which are uh, mama cows who don't have their calves with them and are not trained to pull uh, pull the um, uh, an ox cart. And they, they don't think it can work, but God is in control, and the milch cows bring the ark back to Israel and returns it to Beth Shemesh. And so we see it go from Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, over to Beth Shemesh, and then to Kiriath-Jerim. Now, Beth Shemesh, there's going to be a problem because God is not treated with respect. And one of the things that comes out of this is and, and a study of of uh, the the tabernacle and the temple is how every everything uh, supports the honor and the glory of the Lord, and that uh, He needs to be treated with the uh, utmost respect. Is that me causing that, or just? I don't think so. I'm not moving. We have we have problems. Are we there? Is speaker on? Yeah, it's on. Okay. So they come to Beth Shemesh, and when they arrive at Beth Shemesh, the people uh, are reaping their wheat harvest out in the fields, and they raise their eyes, and they see the ark coming, and they're rejoicing. It's been seven months, and the people have been depressed, thinking that God has deserted them, their God has been defeated. And many times we go through circumstances in life, 
when we think that the plan of God must have hit a major speed bump because of the way things have turned historically. But God is still in control, and so we can learn a lot from this. And I pointed out three principles. Number one, God is never defeated, though God's people may be defeated. Second, that God is greater than any circumstance in human history. And third, that God does not need man to protect him or to give him security or to take care of him. And what we note here is when the ark is returned, they follow proper procedure. They finally follow proper procedure, and it is Levites who come to take the ark of the Lord uh, off of the uh, off of the ox cart and to take care of it. And so the, there's the ark and a box that's with it that has the, the mice and the golden hemorrhoids and then puts them in a large stone. The men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day. You think that's me? Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, I know. Yes, I'm... It's uh, plugged in soundly. Okay. Move everything around. Maybe it'll work. Okay, so they had everything provided for them at that instant. They had the two cows, which they sacrificed as a burnt offering to the Lord. They used the uh, ox cart, dismantled it to use it to uh, create the fire for the burnt offering. And so they worshiped God. But they mishandled the ark. The Beth Shemites think that God is something that can be uh, curiously investigated. And so they come up and they open the ark and they try to look at everything and some uh, 50,000 plus of the Beth Shemites are struck down by the Lord, according to 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. You don't trifle with God, because eventually God is going to bring judgment. And there we read that God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark, and he struck down of all the people, 50,070 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And it emphasizes his holiness, that he is distinct. That's the creator-creature distinction. And then they send for the Levites to come. They're going to properly handle God now. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, and they took the ark of the Lord, because they don't... uh, the Beth Shemites wanted the men of Kiriath-Jerim to take it. Kiriath-Jerim is a suburb of modern Jerusalem uh, known as uh, Abu Ghosh, and it's about seven or eight miles from the Temple Mount. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim come, and they take the Ark of the Lord, bring it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And Abinadab is a Levite and a priest, and they consecrate his son, Eliezer. He has three sons, Ahio, Uzzah, uh, or, excuse me. Ahio and Uzzah are the grandsons. Eliezer is Abinadab's son, and then he has two grandsons, Ahio and Uzzah. And they uh, consecrate Eliezer, his son, to take care of the ark. The only thing that really happens with the ark during the next period of time is that it is taken by Saul into the battle of Michmash in 1041 to lead the Israelites into uh, victory. Now, 
if, if you look at the text that we have there in Second Samuel chapter uh, chapter seven, verses one and two, it says that uh, Eliezer was there for served for twenty years. But the next verse says, and then Samuel said, and that's when Samuel begins his public ministry. Before this time, he's functioned more as a priest within the tabernacle. His public ministry, more as a prophet, begins in chapter uh, chapter seven, verse. Three, and so there's 20 years goes by with um, where the arcs with Eliezer, and then there'll be another 40 years. It covers the period of Samuel and Saul, and then 10 years approximately in the first reign of David. So that comes to about 70 years between this time and the time that the ark is finally brought into uh, into the into Jerusalem and up on the Temple Mount by David. Now. As the ark is initially brought into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's brought on the same, on an ox cart, just as the Beth Shemites had brought the ark uh, to, uh, excuse me, just as the Philistines had brought the ark to uh, Beth Shemesh. The problem is that the Jews are looking to the pagans to tell them how to have a relationship with God and how to handle God. And so they're not following the protocol in the, um, in the Mosaic law of having the Levites carry the ark on their shoulders. So when it hits this uh, bump in the road and the ox cart begins to jostle, it looks like the ark might fall, Uzzah sticks his hand out to stabilize it, and Uzzah dies instantly. And David and everybody is, is struck so by this that, that David just shuts down the whole procedure and stops and he goes back and he begins to study the word to find out why this happened and what he should do in order to properly move the ark. And we know that because when uh, David comes back uh, in several verses later to move the ark the rest of the way into Jerusalem, he does it correctly. They bring the uh, Levites out and they carry the ark on their shoulders uh, on the carrying rods. Now, there's an interesting problem that shows up here in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6, verse 12, that I want to address because I read something about this uh, recently on the Internet, and I know there are many people who listen to me go out, and there's a number of doctrinal, web- doctrinal websites out there, and people put different things up there, some of which are quite good, and many things on this particular website uh, that I looked at were quite good. But the uh, guy who does the work on this particular website was trying to do something that I thought was, was interesting, it just doesn't work. And that is he tried to resolve this problem that we see depicted, as many people imagine it, of David and the Levites uh, dancing like they're at some junior high sock hop uh, before the Ark of the Covenant and it's uh, not exactly the way it would have been. See, the thing is we bring too much of our own culture to these particular uh, issues. And anyway, what this individual attempted to do was to argue that the verb that's used in Second Samuel 6.12, which reads, Now it was told King David, uh, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom, where the ark had been stored for several months, all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. David went, brought up the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of 
David with gladness. So it was when those bearing the ark of the, of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. So all along the way, they were sacrificing. So this was time-consuming. They would have these burnt offerings, and it was also extremely, extremely bloody. Then verse 14 we read, Then David danced before the Lord with all his strength, might or strength, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, linen ephod was, would come down to about uh, knee length or just a little above. Well, this individual attempted to argue that the root meaning of the Hebrew uh, verb that's used here has the idea of circular motion or walking around something. And etymologically, words can often have certain nuances that just don't come across in usage. And but but what he was trying to say, and what he what, what he was saying was that what David was doing now after the death of Uzzah was he was walking around the ark as it was going up the road to Jerusalem, checking everything out all the way along the the way to make sure everything was done properly. But that's not what the text says. Because when we compare that with First Chronicles chapter 15, verses, uh, verse 29, uh, a different w- uh, word is used. The word rakad is used in the PL stem, which has a clear meaning of dancing. Also, it's used in synonymous construction with other word, another word in the passage that means to dance. And this is substantiated by every major lexicon uh, that, that's been published. Uh, forms of this word rakad are found in the title Baal Markad. You hear it? The Q-A-D, the R-Q-A-D in the title Baal Markad, the Baal of the dance, one of the Baal uh, manifestations, as well as cognate words in other languages such as Akkadian, Syriac, uh, and Old South Arabic all indicate uh, dancing is the key meaning of the term. But how are we to understand that? Because many of us who have grown up in a uh, post-World War II environment where the forms of, of dancing broke down to just different people getting out on a dance floor and doing whatever they wanted to do, sort of a uh, <clears throat> dance form of our epistemology, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And all rules broke down. And so that's what we think of when we think of dancing, but we're bringing our cultural experience and frame of reference uh, to the text. Now, in many cultures, there are dances associated with various religious rituals. And you can go to places in India, China, Japan, uh, many other places in the world, and you see these dances, and they're extremely formal and structured. They're not this this unstructured, just jumping around however you want to to an imagined beat. Uh, they're they're very formal and they're very uh, somber, uh, serious. And that is what would have been going on here. You had the musicians were out there that David had brought and organized. You had the orchestra playing. And so it could very, uh, very much have been a very organized and formal uh, structure. You can think of an, a Tchaikovsky ballet or a Japanese Kyoto no mai or a kabuki dance. 
And these styles are extremely elegant, formal, and artful, but they are rigorously disciplined and structured. And I would suggest that if you were to pluck somebody out of the 17th century Japan, uh, 7th century Byzantine Empire, or a or Russia in the 19th century, and you would be able to take a picture of the image that's in their head when they read this verse that David was dancing before the Lord, you would see three completely different images of what this dance looked like. And I don't think any of them would be anything close to what was actually happening when David was dancing before the Lord. So we have to be careful not to read our culture into the text, but to think a little more consistently within the context of how orderly and structured everything is in in the worship uh, service of Israel. All of the uh, sacrifices, all of the ritual, all of the clothing had to be done uh, done just so. Well, <clears throat> we can also think of the the another word that's used in the second uh, first Corinthians passage is that David was leaping before the Lord. But the leaping of a Rudolf Nureyev in Swan Lake is nothing, trust me, if you didn't see it, it's nothing like the leaping of Richard Gere in the film King David. But you use the same word to describe both actions. So we have to be careful with this. Well, anyway, after David got into Jerusalem, they took the ark and stored it at the house of the Gittite, Obed-Edom, who was a Levite, according to Second uh, Samuel six eleven. Now, that's created another problem, because if you're from Gath, like Goliath was from Gath, you'd be called a Gittite. But there was another village with a similar name uh, just down the road from uh, Kiriath-Jerim, and someone from that village would also be called a Gittite. So it's a Levite who is, again, handling the ark. They've learned their lesson. First Chronicles 15, chapter 15 and chapter 16, indicates that David constructed a temporary tent for the housing of the ark on the temple mount as he prepared to build the temple. Uh, First uh, Chronicles 16.1 reads, So they brought the ark of God, set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord. Benaiah and Jehazael, the priests, regularly blew the trumpets uh, before the Ark of the Covenant of God, so he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. So he structures uh, an orchestra and organizes everything. So what we see here is that worship is in the Old Testament wasn't spontaneous. There's something about modern evangelicals that want everything to just be off the cuff, spontaneous, and if it's not spontaneous, then it can't be from the Holy Spirit. My question always is, if God is a God of order, why does the Holy Spirit have to wait to the last minute to tell us what to do? Why can't he give us time to plan and organize so it comes across as somewhat 
uh, professional. Well, during this, this uh, period of time, prior to the uh, building of the, uh, the uh, temple, we saw that it's the high priest, uh, Abiathar, who is responsible for the ark and taking care of it and overseeing the service to the ark in Jerusalem. And then, finally, after David dies, Solomon comes along. We studied this in detail in our King series, and he built the temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon then brought the ark and all of the tabernacle furniture from um, uh, the rest of it was at Gibeah and brought it to the temple mount and there it would reside. And in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8 verse 4 we read, Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle, the priests and the Levites brought them up. Now, underneath the temple, there were huge storerooms underneath the temple mountain. This is where they would have stored all of the furniture that they had used in the tabernacle. It's not mentioned again, but they had constructed a larger menorah and a larger uh, table of showbread and all of the other furniture that had been built for the temple was different from that that had been used in the tabernacle. So all of this was stored uh, in the uh, in the storage vaults underneath the temple. Now, the reason that's important is because we're going to come to the question, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? And they brought the Ark of the Covenant into the holy place, and they set it between these enormous statues of the cherubs that Solomon had built, and the poles that were used to carry the ark would stick out beyond the uh, gate as the, uh, so that they could move things around if necessary without anyone having to go into the ark of the, uh, go into the holy, holy of holies itself. And we studied how Solomon dedicated the temple And from that point on, the ark stays within the temple. But there's an interesting situation that occurs toward the end of the kingdom of of Judah. The ark seems to have been removed from its place in the Holy of Holies during the evil reign of Manasseh and his son uh, Ammon. I mentioned them on uh, Tuesday night, I believe. I believe. And it was during this time that uh, Manasseh had put the Asherah and Balim and all these idols into the temple. And it is believed that the priests during this time hid the Ark of the Covenant in one of these storerooms beneath the temple mount. And then there's just this one passage to indicate this, that King Josiah said to the Levites who taught all Israel and were holy to the Lord, put the holy Ark in the house, that is, in the temple, which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. So this seems to suggest that they had a hiding place. And in light of Solomon's warning in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 9, when he is praying this prayer to God to ultimately fulfill his promises to Israel, that if they're disobedient, idolatrous, and he even uh, takes them out of the land for God to ultimately restore them to the land, Uh, Solomon was aware that eventually they would become apostate. And so there are some who speculate that Solomon, in his wisdom, had a hiding place created 
deep inside the Temple Mount to store the Ark of the Covenant for times of apostasy so that it would not be lost to the people. The last time we have any reference to the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament is in Jeremiah 3.16, not long before the Shekinah glory leaves, not long before Babylon comes in and, and conquers the southern kingdom. And there and we read that, and this is merely a prophecy, that, but it mentions the Ark. It shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, that is, during the kingdom, looking forward to the millennium, says the Lord that they will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. In other words, in the millennial kingdom, the ark is not going to be significant. They'll no longer look for the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. That is the last mention of the ark in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned at all in the New Testament other than historical references back to the early period in Israel's history. So a question that has come up for many people, especially since uh, the film Raiders of the Lost Ark, is where is the ark today? What happened to the ark? Um, the ancient sources all cite that the ark once rested on that bedrock, the foundation stone that the Jews called uh, the, uh, the foundation stone. The Arabs called it the rock. It's the uh, rock that's at the center of the Dome of the Rock, and that's, that has been the focal point of investigation by Jews when they could, but they had, don't have access uh, inside the Dome of the Rock. In uh, one particular archaeologist, Lean Rittmeyer, who was the form, former chief architect of the Temple Mount, believes very strongly, he's the one who's done the most research up there, and he believes very strongly that the rock in the Dome of the Rock is the platform on which the Ark of the Covenant once rested. And he believes that in the, that the Crusaders, when they came in in 1099, tried to reshape the rock into a more acceptable form, and they covered it with marble slabs so it doesn't have the same shape that it, that it once had. There have been several suggestions as to what happened to the ark, and I'm just going to run through these because you've probably heard one or more of these. There are some that have suggested that the ark was in the temple when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, and the Babylonians uh, took it along with all of the other furniture in the tabernacle, melted it all down, and took all the gold uh, back to Babylon, and so it is no longer in existence. On a variation of that, some have suggested that they didn't melt it down. They took all this furniture back to uh, back to Babylon. That's what's referred to in Daniel chapter 5 when Belshazzar's having the big party and he sees the handwriting on the wall and he's going to have all these treasures brought out from the storeroom there in, in Babylon so that he can show everybody how wealthy he is. Uh, and so the ark, the idea is that the ark was taken there. Maybe the Jews brought it back with them, even though it's never mentioned, uh, after the Babylonian captivity. All that is based on, on silence. There is, secondly, there's a rabbinical tradition that says that the, uh, Levites buried the ark, hid it in a subterranean chamber, uh, beneath the temple mount before the Babylonians could capture the city. And uh, nobody knows what uh, happened to it or how to get to that chamber. The knowledge was lost. 
Third, there's another tradition in one of the apocryphal books that states that Jeremiah took the ark out of Jerusalem and hid it in a cave out in the desert. And, of course, the location for that cave has now been lost and would await disclosure by the Lord when he returns. A fourth suggestion is that the ark was transported to heaven where it now rests, and some claim that's the ark that is seen and mentioned in Revelation 11:19. There are others who think that uh, that the ark was taken away by Jeremiah and taken down to Egypt after the Babylonian uh, conquest, and that it eventually ended up in Ethiopia, and that was a popular view back in the 90s. I believe that the most likely view is that Solomon built a chamber somewhere deep inside the Temple Mount to hide the ark during times of apostasy. We know from history that Jerusalem and the Temple would have been threatened many times. Shishak, the Egyptian pharaoh, the Assyrians uh, uh, later on, the Babylonians, uh, not to mention problems with their own apostate kings who put idols in the temple. And it seems that that passage I just showed you in Second Chronicles 35.3 suggests that the ark was hidden during the time of Manasseh's uh, apostasy. And there are passages in the Mishnah and the Talmud that suggest that this is a very real possibility. There was no ark of the covenant in the temple during the second temple period. That's the temple they built when they returned from Babylon and they built the, the temple, uh, Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple in 516 B.C. They dedicated it, and then it was remodeled by Herod beginning in about um, 20 B.C., and it was still in the process of being uh, remodeled during Jesus' lifetime. In fact, it, it was only finished in the 40s, uh, just not too long before it was destroyed. And uh, there was no ark then. There was just the foundation stone and the... A high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the foundation stone on Yom Kippur. When Pompey invaded Jerusalem in uh, 63 B.C., he entered the Holy of Holies and found it empty. He had heard, you know, these stories about this, this ark and he went into the Holy of Holies and there was nothing there. According to uh, one of the tractates in the Mishnah, Tractate Shekelim, a priest in the second temple period was doing some refurbishing in the temple underneath the, in the storage rooms down below and found a loose stone in the floor of the woodshed where they stored all of the wood for the burnt offerings and for the sacrifices. And as he was running out to announce what he had found, he was struck dead and died on the spot. We don't know how accurate that that history is. In modern times, there have been various attempts made to locate the Ark of the Covenant. And I want to show you a number of slides to try to orient you. If you've never been there, it's a little difficult, but I've tried to put some slides together so you can get a feel for what what I'm talking about. This is an aerial shot of the Temple Mount. The gold dome there, uh, just to the left of center, is the Dome of the Rock. If you move down to the uh, lower right from there, you see this dark gray dome here. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. This area just to the east of the Al-Aqsa Mosque now 
is um, uh, that's the area that's called Solomon Stables. Solomon didn't have horses there. He didn't have stables there. It's just called that. Uh, the Arabs have excavated that and built an underground mosque that will hold about 5,000 uh, people. This, the, the direction here where the arrow is, this is your eastern wall. On this side is your western wall. What I'm primarily going to talk about now is what's happening on the western wall. This area here and this plaza is the area known as the Wailing Wall, the western uh, Wailing Wall. This is all open, but as you proceed uh, towards the upper left in the picture, you basically go underground, and there are tunnels that go under, parallel the outer support wall. This this wall that is here was the uh, was the retaining wall for the uh, platform on which the temple uh, stood that was a sta- that was built up uh, by Herod, reinforced in order to. Uh, support the the all the people and activities that were going on. Now the area that we're talking about, that I want to be talking about is the area here where this arrow is pointing. And you can see from this picture that if you walk were to walk straight into an opening here and walk straight forward, you would come out under where they believe the uh, the the holy of holies was, and that was opened up by some uh, a couple of rabbis in the early 80s. Now, just to give you a little different visual, this is an artist's painting of what the Temple Mount would have looked like at the time of Jesus. And the arrow there is pointing to that same opening. This is known as uh, Warren's Gate. And uh, you have another archway here, a walkway that goes into the uh, temple grounds. This is where the priests would have entered the temple grounds. Then down here you have another arch here, and this is known as Robinson's Arch, named after the archaeologist who identified it uh, back in the middle 19th century. Again, this depicts this opening that was here that uh, these this these two rabbis believe they discovered and they began to excavate very secretly because, of course, the Arabs were going to do what Arabs do every time the Jews go on the Temple Mount, and that is riot. In 1967, the Six-Day War, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, who was the uh, chief uh, rabbi for the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, uh, and he was the chaplain for the IDF, was put in charge of the Temple Mount after it was captured uh, by by the Jews. There he is blowing his uh, shofar as they came on the Temple Mount, and he immediately assigned a corps of engineers a two-week task to measure and map the entire area of the Temple Mount. No Jews had been up there in centuries. Uh, unfortunately, Two months later, Defense Minister Moshe Dayan, on his own authority, without consulting anybody, gave control of the Temple Mount back to the Palestinian or the Arab Authority, the Muslim Authority, known as the Waqf. And so Jews had to leave the area. And Rabbi Shlomo Gorn went on to become the... Uh, <coughs> uh, went on to become the chief rabbi for the... Uh, city of Jerusalem. Then in 1981, 
Rabbi Meyer Yehuda Getz, uh, here we have him pictured on the screen, uh, began a secret dig on the Temple Mount in the area of Warren's Gate. This, uh, this is Warren's Gate here. That's the gate that I have been talking about, named after Charles Warren, a British explorer who discovered this a hundred years earlier. It's due to Warren's work that we have so much information. Most of the information we have on the Temple Mount is due to his work as he crawled around and, and went places he wasn't supposed to go and mapped and charted everything. Well, Rabbi Getz had tent discovered this when they were excavating an area to uh, try to build a small synagogue in the Wailing Wall tunnels underneath the underneath the, the uh, wall there that would be the closest synagogue to the Holy of Holies. So they discovered this opening, and he, he took ten students, swore them to secrecy, and they began to excavate their way through this passageway for the next year and a half. No one knew that they were doing this other than uh, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin. And he writes that after they had traced the leading water to its source, they had gone through a couple of passageways down some stairs to a large open room with several passageways that led off to it. Then they went down another staircase where they ran into a lot of water and they had to pump that out. said, after we traced the leading water to its source, we discovered this large opening, Warren's Gate, 25 meters long, 30 meters high, and 8 meters wide. I believed it was from the first temple. When we found this entrance, I ordered the wall to be opened, and we discovered a giant hall shaped like the Wilson Arch, but with exit tunnels running in different directions. The length of this hall was about 75 feet. There were some stairs that we descended for about 30 feet. However, at the bottom, everything was full of water and mud. And when they got there, somehow word got out that they were digging and the Arabs rioted and they had to shut down the whole project. And so no one has uh, gone down there since. But to the day he died, both he and uh, Rabbi Getz believed that they were within 30 or 40 feet of the, of the storage place for the Ark of the Covenant. So again, just I'm going to show you some slides here just so you can orient a little bit to what the Temple Mount looked like. There is Warren's Gate there on the left. And then here where this uh, rectangle is, that's the wailing wall called the Kotel, uh, the western retaining wall. This is where the Jews gather to, to pray. Uh, just to the right of that is Robinson's Arch, and that is called Wilson's Arch, named after Charles Wilson, another uh, archaeologist back in the 19th century. If you go there on a tour, you'll go down into the subterranean chambers and you'll walk along the foundation of the, of the, of the, uh, of the temple structure, the platform that Herod had, uh, had built, and you'll see these huge uh, stones, foundation stones, 450 tons, they estimate, just enormous. And this is the area where, uh, where they were digging. Now, here's a little different view of this for you. This is an outside model they've built, a perfectly scale model of first century uh, Jerusalem. The area that's circled is where you have the entry for Warren's Gate, and you can just see the uh, sim- same thing. This is uh, Robinson's Arch here and then Wilson's Arch back behind it. This is the temple up here, 
and this would be this uh, Wilson's arch was at the walkway that the priests used going on to the temple temple precinct. Here's a little bit closer view, and then in the background here are the uh, Fortress Antonio where the Romans. Uh, uh, barrack their soldiers and you can see that on the towers they could go up in the towers and look down into the temple uh, precincts to keep an eye on the Jews one more model here shows you the same thing here's the temple mount here's uh, uh, Warren's Gate Wilson's Arch Robinson's Arch so you can see the closeness if you go straight in you're not that far from where the uh, dome of the rock would have uh, been located you can see in the background of this picture, just it's pretty dark, but there's an archway back here, and this wall that you see illuminated is the uh, that is the retaining wall. That's the western uh, wailing wall. Okay, let me then. This is a picture along the tunnel. This is how narrow it is, and you can see down the tunnel a little bit. I've got a couple of other shots here. There's another schematic. I love maps and charts. Here's an old picture of the Wailing Wall. Here's the Dome of the Rock, and the area we're talking about is just to the at the left edge of this of this uh, screenshot. Okay, here's a couple of shots of the Wailing Wall tunnels on the left, and the area where they would have uh, gone in to uh, try to excavate underneath the Temple Mount. It's not a very uh, large area. Okay, I have one more thing I want to cover just briefly before we wrap up our study on the on the tabernacle, and that has to do with the clothing of the high priest. The clothing of the high priest. It involved six different elements, six different elements, and the high priest had to dress a specific way. The high priest and the under priest, the other priest, could not dress however they wanted to. God specifically told them how they were to dress when they came to uh, carry out their uh, specific responsibilities. The fabrics and the dyes from which all the, their clothing was made were the most expensive because God is worthy of all honor and glory and, and praise. You just don't show up to worship God in and faded out blue jeans and cutoffs. And so they wore the finest clothes and the most expensive dyes, vibrant colors. Most people were just dressed in, in rather earthen-colored uh, garments. But these garments that the high priest wore stood out. They were extremely uh, well-dressed. Those who the, the colors that were used were the same colors that were used in the tabernacle, and so they had, aesthetically they blended perfectly with everything that you were looking at in the tabernacle. The artistry, the way God puts it all together, was just just fabulous. And those who made the garments were given skill, just as uh, Aholiab and Bezalel were. And the Scripture says that they were wise of heart. They had chokma. And so they had skill at making all of these garments. The high priest had a an ephod, that is the uh, uh, multicolored garment that you see here. He had a breastplate that attached to the shoulders of the ephod and then by gold chains and blue threads to the waist area of the of the ephod. Underneath that, he wore 
a blue robe, and underneath that there was a, a white tunic. And on his head he had a specific uh, headdress that he wore, and on it was a gold plate on which was inscribed the phrase, Holy to the Lord, uh, Kadosh LeYahweh. As we look at the breastplate and the way it is described in the scriptures, uh, it it attached to the ephod through rings at the shoulders. There were two onyx stones on which were inscribed the names of the tribes of Israel, six on each stone. These stones were placed on the shoulders, on the epaulets, and then the breastplate itself was attached by uh, gold rings and gold chains to the uh, ephod rings. There were uh, at the at the bottom there were also gold rings and two sky blue wool threads that were used to attach it to the waist of the ephod. The breastplate itself had four rows of three stones each. These are listed in Exodus 28, a sardius, a topaz, an emerald, second row a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond, third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. We're not sure those are correct. In fact, I read an article by an archaeologist just this last week that they're beginning to think that it emphasized color more than the kind of stone. And so there was a set color for each of the tribes of Israel, and each of these stones had the name of the tribe uh, inscribed on it so that the priest had that the names of Israel, the tribes of Israel, over his heart so that when he went into the uh, Holy of Holies and is carrying out his, his responsibilities, he is representing by means of these 12 stones and the epaulets the tribes of Israel. Here is a... A picture of the epaulets. It doesn't, the names are inscribed there, but it doesn't project well on the projector. Here's another view of the 12 stones on the uh, breastplate. Some have gone to Israel and come back and have little, uh, little uh, a couple of ladies have bought uh, little uh, necklaces that have a uh, depiction of this on them representing the uh, 12 tribes of, of uh, Israel. Over his heart on the breastplate, the high priest would put the Urim and Thummim. Nobody knows what those were. Somehow they were two stones used to discern God's will, whether they were like lots or whether they buzzed or hummed or changed colors or vibrated. Nobody knows. And it's they, But they had something to do with discerning God's will. Here is a recreation of the gold plate. It says Kadosh Yahweh on it that was put on the high priest's uh, headdress. And there's another depiction of the high priest's uh, turban that he wore. And he was to always have this upon his head when he went into the Holy of Holies. And what we see here emphasized again and again is that God pays attention to the details. The precision of the description is uh, very important because it shows that that God is not a God who is worshipped haphazardly. There is an emphasis on uh, protocol, on order, that everything had to be done following very precise very precise descriptions. There's an emphasis as well on aesthetics, on beauty. 
Again and again, it states in the text that it was beautiful. And all of this is to reflect the glory of the Lord, not the glory of the priests. The priests were to dress appropriately when they were serving the Lord. They were to dress appropriately to add dignity and honor to worship. Uh, Exodus chapter 29 describes the consecration of the priests. And we studied that when we studied the uh, golden labor the priest's consecration would be completely washed or bathed, and there was also a sacrifice involving one young bull and two rams that were out with that were without spot or blemish. That's described in Exodus chapter 29. So when you finish a study of the tabernacle, the, uh, several things should impress you. Number one is the distinctiveness of God. He is unique. That's the, the concept of holy. He, he must be approached on his terms. And he is the only one who can define those terms. And he is completely set apart from his people. He is distinct. He is unique. It emphasizes the creator-creature distinction. There was nothing like that in any of the pagan religions. The second thing that, that we note is that he cannot be approached apart from cleansing or purification, which is ultimately done by a blood sacrifice, the emphasis on substitutionary atonement, that the, uh, the animals used in the sacrifices, the bulls, the goats, the sheep, all had to be without spot or blemish. This all depicts the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ who was without sin and thereby qualified to go to the cross and die on the cross on our behalf. And that when the worshiper comes into the tabernacle or the temple and places his hand upon that uh, animal, it is that, that depicts identification and a recognition that his sin is covered by the sacrifice of the animal, just as when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we recognize that his death on the cross pays the penalty for our sins. So that when we study all the sacrifices and all the different rituals in the temple, each of these depicts some different facet of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, primarily on the cross, but also in relation to his current high priestly ministry and his future priestly ministry and our future priestly ministry as members of the body of Christ who will be ruling and reigning with him in the millennial kingdom. That becomes a focal point in our study in Hebrews 9 and 10, and we will get back into Hebrews 9 then next Thursday night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to come to a greater understanding of the uh, ritual and the procedures in the tabernacle and the temple and to see how this was carried out down through the centuries. We look forward to the fact that, that someday we will see our Lord Jesus Christ as he comes for us and he is our great high priest because he is the one who entered into the Holy of Holies. He is the one who made the sacrifice, and he is the one who opened the way to you, and the veil has been torn, and his death was complete and sufficient so that all that is necessary today is for us to put our faith in him, to believe in him, to trust him for our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.